So session uh, four, five, and six will focus on uh, within that framework for the sum total of reality. This is the cosmogony, the beginning, and the heavens in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He sat enthroned over the heavens and the earth. It was created in perfection. Man rebelled. That sets the stage for the eschatology that God will restore all things in the heavens and the earth. He'll end rebellion. He'll reestablish righteousness. And so we're going to work through that that is the gospel. The gospel is the restoration of all things. And the restoration of all things happens by three things. The, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of resurrection, the gospel of the kingdom. And so um, three aspects of of all things um, gospel of Christ gospel of the resurrection gospel of the kingdom and so each of these which are uh, phrases. This one's not directly used, gospel of resurrection, but it's it's uh, uh, kind of uh, used. Uh, but each of these represents an aspect of the restoration of all things. So within that broad framework of of. Uh, God restoring all things at the day of the Lord. Within that broad restoration, we're going to cover uh, these three aspects. So, uh, the uh, and these are the three aspects in 1 Corinthians 15, because part of the problem of defining what the gospel is 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 that there's just not a lot of direct commentary in the New Testament as to what the gospel actually is. And the reason is, is because it's simply assumed from the Old Testament and from the overarching worldview that this, that this is what it is. And so that term, euangelion or euangelizo, for the verb of to preach good news, is used 103 or 104 times, depending on your manuscript, and only about five or six times is it used in any way that's beyond just a referencing the gospel of Christ or he preached the gospel here or went there. And there's only five or six times where there's any additional information. The only time that it's really laid out, this is the gospel, and it's laid out in, in a kind of systematic way is 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, so he says, let me remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. And he goes into these three main aspects, that Jesus was the Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the coming kingdom that he'll establish when he returns. And so these three aspects really embody the gospel of the, resurrection, of the restoration of all things and a restored creation. So, introduction, the Greek immaterial Christ. And so... In the, uh, in the first century, the beginnings of Gnosticism are taking root as Christianity is being incorporated in with uh, Greek mythology and Greek philosophy. 
and the application of an immaterial heavenly destiny was that God is incorporeal. He doesn't have a form or body. That we will have an incorporeal final destiny in in an immaterial heaven with Him. And therefore, the Christ had to also be incorporeal and that He didn't actually come in the flesh because the body and materiality are evil. And so, First uh, John 4, this is what he's uh, referencing. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so Gnosticism is a theology of uh, Antichrist, and it leads people to uh, delusion which you have heard is coming, is now already even in the world. And a lot of people really do believe in an incorporeal Jesus. They might theoretically believe that He became corporeal in the Incarnation, but then generally they believe He kind of cast off that corporeality and is now incorporeal uh, in an immaterial heavenly reality. And they don't really believe that Jesus right now has a body next to the Father and that the Father Himself uh, has a body. And uh, that one's a, a fairly big pill for a lot of people, but they argued it f- uh, with uh, force in the early church. So, uh, Christ is a proper name. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, even eternal life. And so the denial that Jesus is the Christ, the problem is is that um, uh, uh, Gnosticism and immaterial heavenly destiny perverts what the Christ is. And so even today, most people just hear Jesus Christ and they assume intuit it within their mind or whatever that Christ simply is Jesus' last name, that it's His proper name. And His proper name is Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. But they called Him Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah because it embodied who they believed He was. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so the, the, the worldview again kind of gives context and Redemptive history as a whole gives context for what the Christ is and what the purpose, mission, identity of the Christ is. And therefore, we identify that Jesus is the Christ and we put our hope uh, in Him as the Christ. So, uh, point two, biblical survey of the Messianic hope. Uh, So the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between her seed... And so Irenaeus referred to this as the, Frodo, the Proto-Evangelium, the uh, Proto-Gospel, uh, or Good News. He, and it's in the singular, uh, masculine, He will bruise your head and you will bruise His heel. Or the NIV translates, He will crush your head and you will strike His heel, which, like, which I think is... a is the translation according more according to the meaning because Paul uses the Greek word for crush in uh, in uh, uh, Romans 16:20 when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet and so that was the idea of of uh, when he makes reference to that 
is that, uh, and so uh, then to Adam he said, In the sweat of your face or by the sweat of your brow you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the perversion of the rebellion of the angels, the perversion of the rebellion of man, will be crushed by the seed that will come forth from Adam and Eve. And so this is the genesis of the hope of the seed or the anointed one that will that is anointed by God to uh, crush the enemy. Uh, genesis uh, 4, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth, the Hebrew word for son being Ben, because you end up getting, it's uh, not not directly interchangeable, but they're in the same semantic domain, and and one brings to mind the other, the idea of a seed or a son, a Ben or a Zerah. So uh, Adam and Eve assumed that they would have a son, Cain, and that he would be the seed that the Lord would anoint and, uh, and crush the head of the enemy and fix what they uh, screwed up. But... Uh, that didn't work out so well. He killed his son, was disqualified. And so they bore another son and named him Seth, which is a word play on, uh, on uh, Sith or Sheth and Shith. So saying, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain uh, killed. And as for Seth, to him was also born a son, and he named him Enosh then, or at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord when it was clear that Seth also was not the, uh, the appointed seed. And so when you analyze the names of the different people in the, in the genealogy in Genesis 5, it becomes clear that they're naming their children in the hope that their destiny will be the appointment of the seed, like Enoch, who walked with God and had a son, Methuselah, which can either mean man of the dart or when he dies, it comes. And, uh, and so uh, probably the better one or the more likely one that he, since he saw the day of the Lord and the angels coming and judging the ungodly is that he, uh, the Lord spoke to him that when he dies, it will come the day of the Lord. Only the day of the Lord didn't come, but in the same year that Methuselah died, the flood happened, which is the primary type and event that pictures the day of the Lord, which Jesus himself uses just as it was in the days of the Son of Man. I mean, in Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And then Noah names his son, or Lamech names his son Noah, which means rest, and says, for surely the Lord will give us rest from the curse upon the ground. And so the hope is, is that Noah will be the one that the Lord appoints to overturn the curse on the ground and men returning to the dust and death and uh, restore things. Page 2. Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, who is man? And the Hebrew word for man is Adam. And so different translations, like the New Revised Standard, doesn't even translate Adam to Adam until the second part of chapter 4. It just translates Adam as the man. And, you know, and... 
the man was with his wife, and the man ate, and his wife ate, and the Lord spoke to the man. And so the NRSV just translates it as man all the way, because it's the same word, because Adam and man mean the same thing. And so Psalm 8 is, What is Adam that you are mindful of him, and the son of Adam, Ben Adam, that you care for him? You have made him, Adam, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him, Adam and his sons, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And so this psalm, which recounts creation and recounts that God uh, gave dominion over the earth and because they rebelled against that, they didn't lose dominion. That's, that's, a, that's a very twisted idea. Man has never lost dominion over the earth. The, 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 the fact that it's, it's in our having dominion and our responsibility for the earth and for caring for each other and etc. that that's what we'll be judged by. And so judgment and accountability is based on our, uh, the fact that... Uh, that we are in rebellion and are not, we're perverting how we ought to relate and function on the earth. And so the Psalm 8 is quoted in uh, two places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2, um, both of them referring to the Messiah and the day of the Lord. And so 1 Corinthians 15, since death came through a man... Referring to Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet referring to Adam and so the idea is is that dominion is given to Adam but God has re- but Adam has rebelled and perverted that but God has promised that a seed from Adam a descendant from Adam God will anoint and and restore the righteousness as it was in the beginning with Adam and overturn the order of rebellion and the order of death that was ushered in by Adam's rebellion and so they interpret Psalm 8 as not only talking about Adam, but also the seed of Adam. And then, uh, oh, I don't have it in here, but, uh, but Hebrews 2 says the same thing. So Ephesians 1, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in the heavens, just in the plural, and on the earth together under one head, even Christ. And so um, the NIV, I've, I've puzzled because this, this verse in particular is so foundational to a lot of, of, uh, of a lot historically, theologically, and uh, because the King, King James says that in the dispensation of the times, when they reach their fullness or whatever. And so the put into effect, the Greek word is oikonomia, which the NASB translates the most solid. In the administration, in the fullness of times, it's the household management from the oikos 
and the nomos from the law of the house or the management of the household. So in the management, in the household administration, when it reaches its fullness, that God would bring all things in the heavens and on the earth under one head, which is Christ Jesus. And, uh, and that head will crush the, the uh, head of, of Satan. And so I just put my translation under there, not that I'm a, a Greek scholar, though I uh, can get around in it, but uh, I think it's just a better idea. The NIV, I think, is the best translation of it, and then the Net Bible, and then the NASB, and then the King James, New King James, and then the ESV and NRSV are positively horrible. So that in the fullness of the times of the household administration, the household referring to the heavens and the earth, God's house that he rules over, uh, all things in the heavens and on the earth would again be brought together under headship in the Messiah. And so it's a direct reference to the headship of the Messiah over the earth as it was in Adam, uh, again like it was in Adam in the beginning. So uh, the Abrahamic messianic hope, it continues on that the seed not only would come through uh, from Adam and Eve, but through Enoch, through Noah, and then through Abraham. The, the promise for the appointed Messiah and the messianic hope is reiterated over and over. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And I do the King James because there it's... Uh, ironically, it's it's uh, it's the only one that transfer that translates it according to uh, how it ought to be translated. So, um, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And so he names him according to his destiny in the age to come when the seed comes forth. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will uh, make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed. And again, it's in the singular. After thee and the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And so, uh, to be a God unto thee, again, Abraham, so if you put Abraham right here, you say, come on, man, did Abraham really understand? Abraham's only a few generations removed from Adam. I mean, Abraham has the genealogy in his own mind. Adam's my great, 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 grandfather. I mean, he's got it all like, there's records of it, He's and they're probably a lot smarter at that point. Than, uh, than as we're all diluted, diluted down in chemicals and such now. And so, like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's the only reality that Abraham knew. It's the, the, how it's recorded in Genesis 1 is the reality that Abraham understood. And he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't just a dumb herdsman that he, he was dealing with life and his wife dying and his kids and his, I mean, his reality and his hope for life was based on Genesis 1 and so he knows there's a seed that's going to come forth and when God promises it to him it's not theological wrangling on the part of New Testament writers to say this is how he understood things this the point is is this is 
obviously the way you would understand things if all you have is this picture right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you have this picture, how do you see it playing out? And so, um, so Paul, this is in Galatians 3, Paul's trying to make a point about righteousness and the law. And he appeals to the Abrahamic covenant and then just makes the point, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, i.e. how you interpret and then translate, and to seeds, meaning many people, which ironically, all of the newer translations translate it as descendants or offspring, referring to plural as people. Which it, it it does embody plural, but only in the singular head of of the Messiah. But and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And so the covenant is made with the seed that comes forth from Abraham, and then we are grafted into that seed under his headship. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. So in Romans four, when Paul is talking about Abraham it's not that he's like just got this messianic, you know, kind of theology that he's worked up by a spirit of revelation. It's that this is the simple deduction of the reality of the scriptures, and this is actually how Abraham saw life. And so the fact that God promised that many nations would be blessed through him. Um, do I cover it in this? Yeah, I think it's in the next session. But the idea of the blessing is that the same way Adam and Eve were blessed, therefore the nations will be blessed and like it was in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And so there's the assumption that if the seed's going to come forth and through my seed all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed and I'll be blessed, and then that means that I'll be raised from the dead and I'll inherit the earth and all the nations uh, uh, beneath my seed. And, and me in line. So it's not uh, through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. He is the father of us all, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations, referencing what we just read in Genesis 17. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom He believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And so the God who executes... Let's see this. If we can see this a little better. So the God who executes judgment rewards the righteous and raises the dead and calls things that are not Abraham, who will be raised from the dead, as though they were. He gives him the prophetic name. It's, it's a way of speaking and strengthening Abraham that, listen, if you will walk in, in righteousness and repentance and faith, that I am your shield, I am your righteousness, and, and I am the one who will raise you from the dead, and that you walk out your life in fear and trembling and dependence on me, uh, then he gives him the, the name to, to strengthen his walk on that narrow road until then. Um, 
Oh, am I up? Sorry. So, Acts 3, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked way. The assumption meaning that he'll send him the second time to bless you by restoring all things. And that this is the promise made to Abraham, the same promise made to Adam and Eve, that the Messiah, the seed, would come through Abraham uh, in, in his line. And then the Davidic, the, the messianic hope is further uh, singled in that the seed will not just come uh, for mankind as a whole and all the nations, it will come through one people group, the, the descendants of Abraham, but then it will also come through one family, which is David. And uh, the messianic seed, the, uh, the anointed one, will be David. Uh, uh, also Davidic, which is what you get like the beginning of the New Testament and the Gospel. That's why they make the whole point on, you know, Matthew, uh, what's he say? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And they go through the whole genealogy. That Look, he was the seed of from Adam and Abraham and David, the one that God has appointed and anointed to execute the, uh, the day of the Lord. Um, so, First uh, Chronicles 17, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, uh, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. So this is really where you get a lot of the Son of God uh, theology that the Messiah is the Son of God. The Son of God versus Son of Man distinction, uh, th- this isn't, I mean, this is in popular kind of uh, circles that it's used to justify the full divinity and the full humanity, but that wasn't what it it referred to in the first couple centuries uh, of the church. Uh, they were interchangeable messianic titles, and actually, the Son of Man carried more connotations of divinity than the Son of God uh, in, in early church circles. Not that I fully agree that he's fully God and fully man, but that's not the that's not the point that they're trying to make. A lot of because this is what ends up happening when you convolute, you know, the immaterial versus the material. You end up focusing on things that ought not be focused on, and it's agreed that God is three persons, one substance. It's agreed that the Son, the one of those persons, is fully God and fully man. But these are not the things to argue and wrangle over. The apostles didn't argue and wrangle over these things because it's like, you know, me with my son and I kick him out of the house in the middle of winter because he's completely out of control, rebellious, and I tell him, until you repent and get right, you're outside in the snow, okay? And so the the thing my son is, is it's important for him to to keep on the forefront is how do I get back into the house? It's not focusing on 
I my name is John Harrigan. I'm I'm six foot one. I'm very skinny and wear glasses and have blonde hair. It's it's not my ontological attributes that really matter in the situation. Those though those can play importance on the functional redemptive aspects of getting back into the house. <laughs> and I am the God who has made a way. I am the Father who has made a way for you to get back into the house. And I am the Father of salvation. I am the Father of righteousness. I am the Father. And so the names of God and the character of God, when it's within this, you get arguments over, you know, what are the ontological character and nature of God in the immaterial realm? It's like um, it's, it's like these are not the things, and this is why all the you the all the Greek names of God, like immutable and omniscient, and omni- those that that's never those are never attributed to God. Names are attributed to God. Like he's the God of Israel, he's the God of the nations, he's the God of righteousness, he's the God my salvation. He's, it's it's relational and functional, not ontological as relating to his being. But once you put God in some other immaterial reality, rather than at the high of the heavens ruling over creation, then you end up getting sidetracked on these these things. Okay, so. Uh, Son of God, Messianic title. Okay, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. And so uh, you start to get uh, the using of the phrase, the the Mashiach or the Messiah, the using of the phrase as anointed one in the uh, prophetical writings. Uh, to refer to the branch and the seed and uh, the shoot of David, etc., different ways of referring to the man that will come out of uh, the human line and be uh, appointed. Uh, then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth. Your possession, Psalm 89, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. My faithfulness, my mercy shall not shall be with him my name. And in my name, his horn will be exalted, his, his strength, the, the seed's strength over the nations. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so the Psalms, you know, in seminary, I had, I had an Old Testament professor that spent literally a whole day just on this one point that you don't relate to the Psalms theologically, that you relate to them devotionally. And now I look back on it, I'm like, the Psalms are the single most substantial theological book in the Scriptures. The single most. They're the most quoted. It's the most quoted book by far in the New Testament. And it holds the, I mean, it's the, it's the, the Psalms are the first time, because from, basically from here to here, all you get is narrative. You don't get any commentary on the covenants along through here. And then with the Psalms, you get the earliest commentary on the covenants. 
and and it's just if you interpret you know particular uh, words like salvation and life and living and uh, as in context to this framework and you understand and you interpret that David didn't see himself as the fulfillment of the covenants that he actually put his own hope in the seed then the Psalms really blow open and so uh, and so Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are the two most quoted in the New Testament uh, along with Psalm 118, which those really are the three main messianic psalms, along with Psalm 72, 80, 89, etc. Um, but these these are a foundation and a bedrock for uh, for interpretation of who Jesus is and uh, and redemptive history as a whole. Once you get the New Testament, so Psalm 110, the Lord, and so you get the in the English, you get the capitalization, all caps, in reference to Yahweh, versus lowercase, says to my Lord, Adonai, or Adonai. And uh, the, the lower Lord is, is uh, in reference to the Messiah. Sit at my right hand and I, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, will extend your scepter, the Messiah's scepter from Zion. You, the Messiah, will rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord, and so Psalm 110 was so central in messianic thought. That's why the book of Hebrews is like really working through, you know, the Lord has made you a priest in the order of Melchizedek, stuck right in the middle of of this psalm. And it's like, what in the world is that about? And so that's why you have the the importance of working through that particular phrase because of the context of that phrase. He says, the Lord... The Lord, the Messiah, is at your right hand, Yahweh's. He, the Messiah, will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He, the Messiah, will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers. And uh, the Hebrew word is, uh, the Hebrew doesn't have a word for head. It just has a word for the top of something. So the heads of the mountains, the heads of the clans, the heads of whatever. Crushing the heads of the whole earth. Uh, Isaiah 9, for unto us a son, a ben, is given, a seed is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, a branch, will appear. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, like Isaiah 42. And so this is the context for the baptism. Okay, when the Spirit of the Lord comes down, and the voice says, this is my Son, and they're like, he's the Son of God, and the Spirit has rested on him, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42. And uh, therefore, he's going to go over, he's go into the temple, set up his throne, the angels are coming, the glory is going to spread over the earth. Awesome. Um, so, uh, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will, st- he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious.
uh, Zechariah 9 rejoice greatly. So I'm, I'm just putting in here the main ones that, that get quoted and are, are common. Obviously, we, there's just not enough room to really work through it, but we'll hit some. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And now, so this is, this is important to view that the, the Messiah, the seed from Adam, the seed from Abraham, the seed from David, he's the messianic seed that will execute the day of the Lord, but also he is the arm of the Lord. And so, uh, John 12, you get uh, this, uh, this idea of the Messiah, the Christ, uh, is the arm of the Lord. And, and again, this may seem a little bit odd and novel, but it's uh, very simple in, in light of how they saw redemptive history. So, John 12, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who's, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And, uh, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, and then Jesus cries out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. Because the idea is when he's talking about I and the Father are one, the Father's committed judgment unto me, that he's, he's referencing not so much ontologically that I and the Father are of the same homoousius versus homoousius or whatever, you know, of the same substance or like substance, blah, blah, blah. His point is functionally I and the Father are one. And I am the arm of the Lord in relation to the Father. And, and so like Isaiah 52, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring t- good tidings, who proclaim salvation, to, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. See, my servant will act wisely. The servant of the Lord is the arm of the Lord. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of Him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which is, which is what John is quoting, that they won't believe that He is the arm of the Lord, the Messiah. He... He, the arm of the Lord, the servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And then it goes into the suffering servant bit in fifty three. And so, just a few examples of the expectation for the, the Messiah and the Christ as the arm of the Lord, as the executor of the uh, vengeance and day of the Lord bringing recompense. The Lord will cause men to hear His majestic voice and will make them see His arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudbursts, thunderstorm, and hail. 
every stroke of the Lord the Lord lays on them with his punishing rod will be to the music of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arms. Topheth has long been prepared. Okay, so this is where you get the idea of Gehenna is that there is a valley on the earth outside of Jerusalem that is called Topheth or also called the Valley of Ben-Hanom. So in four or five places it directly says Topheth, known as or called the Valley of Ben-Hanom, which in the Greek translated as the Valley of Gehenna. Okay, and so, uh, and so the reason they had a trash dump and perpetual burning fire out in the Valley of Gehenna outside Jerusalem is because the prophets have revealed that at the day of the Lord, God will prepare the valley of Gehenna and set it ablaze with his breath and it will so they're doing as it will be in the age to come because God will come down with the Messiah execute vengeance and the wicked will be thrown into the valley of Gehenna outside of Jerusalem which is where there'll be darkness and gnashing of teeth you'll be thrown out right so that's what when Jesus is saying those things they're like Oh my, if I don't repent, you're going to throw me outside of the New Jerusalem into the uh, Lake of Gehenna. So it's long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. It's fire pit, so the king is the arm of the Lord coming down with, uh, with vengeance. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. So intense, man. <laughs> and so that's why Gehenna, every time in the New Testament, is always referred to in the future because the prophetical writings refer to the valley of Gehenna as, uh, as uh, the future place of the wicked. Isaiah 40, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice, say, Here's your God. To see, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and His arm rules for Him, His Christ, His Messiah, His Anointed One. See, His reward is with Him, His recompense accompanies Him. So this is the idea, when you see me, you see my Father. For when you when and I only do the work my father does, like John five, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, he can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father done does the father the son also does, and so he only works as the father works as a man rolls up his sleeve and bears his arm to do work, and so the son. The arm of the Lord is one with the Father. When you see the arm of the Lord, you see the Lord Himself. And so this is why they would equate passages that, like Zephaniah, you know, Zephaniah 1, where the day of the Lord is near, a day of darkness and gloom when fire will consume the whole earth. Well, the, fire, the Lord is going to consume the whole earth by His arm, by His anointed one, by the Messiah. And so they they uh, equate the two together. So, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, to His arm, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to condemnation. 
And so you see the expectation of the Messiah as the seed of Adam, as the seed of Abraham, as the seed of David, that is the arm of the Lord to execute judgment and justice upon the earth to restore it to its original glory. You see, you see the picture? Right. So, uh, page 6. Uh, Isaiah 66. So, when... when when Jesus says the Father, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, or in other versions like Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And so, when Jesus says that, his disciples go, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you." That means you're going to execute judgment and do the day of the Lord bit. And Jesus says, "Therefore, go." and proclaim to all the nations forgiveness of sins and repentance before the day of the Lord. Okay, and so they have all of these passages, like Isaiah 66, see the Lord is coming with fire, with His chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down His anger with fury, His rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with His sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be slain by the Lord through his arm as that judgment is entrusted to the Son. Zephaniah 1, Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, Acts 10, so this is the context that they see Jesus, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He's the one whom God has appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. He is the son of Adam, the, the son of Abraham, the son of David, that God has appointed to execute judgment and judge the living and the dead on the day of the Lord. Acts 17, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world by the man He has appointed, by the seed that He has appointed to restore things. And He's given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead because He hadn't raised anybody else out of the dirt that all men have been condemned to. And so this really is the... the the core issue of all human beings, whether people articulate it out or not, this is really what's going on with every human being, is that they're born, they are babies, they poop and they cry, and we have no, and we grow up and we begin to understand our life and the earth and its messed upness, and we begin to respond to that corruption and brokenness. And without a messianic hope, we begin to try to fix things. But then that becomes futile and you begin to give up and get more and more disillusioned and then become grumpy old men as their time progresses because they realize that the earth is exceedingly wicked, etc., etc. And so it's in that tension that men are caught where they either give up on trying to fix everything or they really give their lives to fixing everything. And either way is destruction. Either way is destruction. If you try to appoint yourself as the one to bring justice and fix the earth, or if you give up on justice being established upon the earth. 
The answer is, is that God has appointed one man to execute justice upon the earth. And our role is to acknowledge that I am a son of Adam and I am not appointed as the Messiah. But Jesus was the one that was appointed as the Messiah and I put my faith in Him and I put my hope that He's my righteousness and that I'll be included in that seed on the day of the Lord and will be saved from the wrath to come. And it really is, I mean, if you want to get down to the core struggle in the heart of every human being, it really is the appointment of being the Messiah. Because we, we all have that thing at the deepest parts that says, I, I'm the man. I'm, it's, it's what drives every form of occultism and elitism and every uh, ultimately disastrous thing like World War II or the French Revolution. All of those were done out of messianic complexes. I mean, the whole... Hitler-Aryan race was that Hitler was the Messiah who had the power and the ability to save the human race and cleanse its gene pool. The French Revolution was to cleanse the earth from its its delusionment, its pre-enlightenment delusionment of religion and rename all of the Catholic sanctuaries, change the names of the weak, etc., to er eradicate Christianity and religion from the earth. Anyway, so, uh, all right, so page six, Christ crucified. Now, the main confusion, this, this is all understood, okay, when we open up to the New Testament. The primary confusion is, is that the Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified before entering into his glory. Okay, so uh, Luke 24, when they're walking down the road to Emmaus, and Jesus walks up in their midst and says, what are you guys talking about? And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, the man accredited by signs and wonders, we had hoped he was going to be the one to restore Israel. And Jesus responds and says, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And generally that's interpreted as suffer these things and then enter into His glory at the ascension. Which is not, that's not what He's saying. He's, he's not saying metaphysically, He's saying temporally He had to suffer before entering into His glory. Suffer, ascend, and then descend. Uh, Acts 2 uh, and this is the primary message, message that gets reiterated over and over. Acts 2, the, the Holy Spirit's poured out. They ask, what is this? He says, this is just like the prophet Joel. The Holy Spirit would be poured out before the great and terrible day of the Lord to get you to turn from your wickedness. Jesus was accredited to you as the Messiah, yet you crucified Him. But God raised Him from the dead, 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 exalted Him to the right hand of His Father. As David said, wait at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so obviously they self-recognize, I am the enemy of the Lord, that He's going to make His footstool because I crucified Him. And the day of the Lord is coming. He says, So, therefore, let everyone understand that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And so they're cut to the heart because they're like, 
the day of the Lord is going to come upon me and I'm his enemy, he's going to make his footstool. And all Peter is saying is, listen, the Messiah had to suffer before entering into his glory. You just don't want to be on the wrong side of that glory. And then Acts 3, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did, your, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, or the recovery of breath, referencing the resurrection, may come from the presence of the Lord." When, when, the, when the Messiah appears with the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you until the time He must, for heaven must receive Him until the time for the restoration of all things. He had to suffer in the ordaining of God, and He must remain in heaven until the time for the restoration of all things. Acts 17, as was his custom, Paul went in the synagogues on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He had to suffer, He is the Christ, and will enter into His glory. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And so why is it so easy to persuade Jews in Thessalonica and then he's only there, he reasons for three Sabbath days, and then in First and Second Thessalonians, he goes into the ornate detail of eschatology, and he says, I told you all these things about the Antichrist, and the setting up in the temple, and etc., etc., while I was with you, and people are like, man, he got into all that theology about, you know, the Antichrist here, and... You know, it seems like he had three Sabbath days. It would be hard enough just to convince those Jews of their new spiritual kingdom and destiny and resurrection. But the reality is, is they already had all the prophetical writings. They already had everything telling them about the horn that would rise up and etc., etc. And Paul is just saying, listen, this Jesus I'm telling you about, he's the Messiah. He had to suffer first which you are dull of heart because you think God will anoint whoever has power. You judge by outward appearances. But God says He's going to anoint whoever is most sacrificial and loving in the age to come. And so you're dull and you didn't recognize that this is how the servant of the Lord would be, that He would model for the earth, for the servants of the Lord who would inherit eternal life in the resurrection. So uh, Hebrews 9, but now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined once to die and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He suffered at the first time, and he will appear a second time, not to suffer and bear sins, but to bring salvation and glory to those who are waiting for him. In 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ at Christ and the glories that would follow temporally. Therefore, prepare, prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Christ Jesus is revealed. So, uh, the crucified heir, uh, Luke 22, in context to him doing the Last Supper and saying, I'm not going to eat of this until the kingdom of God comes, do this in remembrance of me until the day of the Lord, there breaks out an argument in their midst about who's going to be the greatest. Right? And then Jesus says, he says, um, oh, I didn't put it all in there. So there breaks out an argument in their midst, and he says, 
there's a dispute among them as to which would be considered the greatest in the age to come in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They call themselves factors, workers for the bene, for the well-being of the people. It's Latin. It's Latin-based, meaning you know, workers for the well-being of the whole. So they call themselves benefactors. They call themselves servants for the people. But you are not to be like that, because even though they call themselves servants, they're actually hypocrites and they're not actually servants, right? Here to serve and protect, right? So um, <laughs> it's not all that way, obviously. Just uh, you know. All right. So he says, "But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves." For who's greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so He says, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by Me in My trials, and I confer on you a kingdom if you will be one who serves, just as my Father has conferred one on me. And the reason the Father has conferred the kingdom and appointed Jesus as the son of Adam, Abraham, David, etc., as the arm of the Lord, is because He fully embraced self-sacrifice and love in truth and in service. And so therefore, the greatest servant the Lord exalts in the age to come as the chief ruler. And doesn't this glorify the Father? I mean that the Father would choose this man to rule over the earth and not some man like Alexander or other men that we call great. Like, this is the glory of God, that this is how God is. And that this is how He will actually judge at the day of the Lord as to truth of heart, as to whether people are actually loving and self-sacrificing and humble. So Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality. And so, hold on, how does he say it right before that, the sentences? He says, uh, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he picks up, your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. So again, it's not the ontological nature, but the functional nature. Being in himself, uh, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God in governmentally ruling over everything as something to be grasped and taken hold of. He didn't live to inherit the earth. He lived to lay down his life for the earth. And because he lived as that as really that is his in-game motive, then God uh, uh, blessed him and favored him to be the one to inherit the earth. 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he humbled himself in obedience unto death on the cross, then therefore God exalted him to the highest place at his right hand in the high of the heavens and gave him the name that's above every other name over all other uh, rulers and principalities, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth at the day of the Lord, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, uh, like I think we hit this last time, Matthew 16, flip over to page 8. Oh, I put that in both sessions. So, Matthew 16 and John 12 Um, Philippians 1, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction." but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him and be a co-heir in His glory, but also suffer for His sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had and, and now hear that I still have. Romans 6, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection on the day of the Lord. And then Romans uh, 8, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I do not consider... The, the sufferings of, of this present time is worthy being compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Philippians 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things in this life and this age and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection at His coming, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. How sweet is that? But, I mean, it really, like, if you you don't have that this is... Like this is the framework that God is working within, then you can't embrace that it's granted to me to embrace the cross in this age, that I might receive the far surpassing glory of the age to come. If there's confusion about this, then it's hard to give your heart to hating your life in this age and living for the age to come. I remember, I, it just the picture comes to mind. I don't know if you guys have seen that picture of the, the uh, oh, I did it again. The last, uh, the, uh, the Christian martyrs, that painting uh, where you have the martyrs gathered together in a huddle in the Roman Colosseum, and then you have the lions coming out. And somebody took that picture and wrote across uh, the bottom, 
God has a great plan for your life, or God has a loving plan for your something like that along the bottom. And God's plan for your life in this age is the cross. That's the plan for your life. And if you can swallow that pill and say that the day of the Lord, I'm going to be judged, and it's a joy for me to embrace the cross. It's a joy for me to be purged of all the ambitions of this life and the wickedness of this life. It's a joy for me to not have any ambitions other than the cross. I would rather have no ambitions and be absolutely stuck and dead than, than have, be full of all of these ambitions that drive men unto unrighteousness that will be burned up on the day of the Lord. The goal is, is that I no longer live, but only Christ lives in me, and the love of Christ compels me. And that's the ideal, the standard of the cross in this age, is that we walk out of a heart and we're conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, that everything he did was as a servant in truth, and that everything he did was out of love, humility, compassion, self-sacrifice, etc., and that these are the fruit of the Spirit of God within us, bringing us in line with the character and nature of God of this is how He is. I just love the Lord. He's just so good like that. And this is, this is, Romans 12 just comes to mind, this is the nature of those who are overcomers. Overcomers are not those who take over the world, who are awesome, or who are whatever. Overcomers are those who have given up pursuit and hate this life and have overcome the world. They're not sucked into the world and all of its desires and passion and the lust of its eyes for stuff, etc. It's overcome the world and it's set its heart fully on the revelation of Jesus. It's set its heart fully on the age to come. And it is it like in uh, Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren's cast down, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb and the hope of the testimony uh, of the age to come. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from uh, death. And so, um, oh, let's just ask the Lord for that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is who you are, that you have glorified yourself, Father, in Christ Jesus on the cross, that you have made yourself known that this is the kind of God you are and this is how you are, and we rejoice in having a master like you. And we gladly lay down our lives. We say we will serve no other man and we want to serve no other man but the one that you have appointed because he is a good master and his yoke is light and he doesn't lord it over like the world does, God, we ask you to, again, root the cross in our hearts that we might imitate our Master. We might be found worthy and without spot or blame at His coming. In Jesus' name, amen.